0: I'm gonna make myself a cup of tea do you want one I'd love a cup of tea
1: thanks'm right. on, working on, this. I'm working on this. This
0: hi there and welcome you're listening to the diving in podcast brought to you by Virginia Seymour and Louise Jones. This podcast is part of a lifelong conversation between friends about the books we're reading and the issues they make us think about. That also goes for the movies and television we're watching and the podcasts we're currently hooked on. We might even talk about what's in the news and anything else we're diving into this week.
1: Dive
0: that is a lovely cup of tea. Thanks, Lou. So tell me about New York. Well, it was a pretty exciting time to be in New York. I've got so much to talk about. I think as you posted on our Insta page, September and October is the time that um, a lot of new books get released. So I spent quite a lot of time in New York bookshops. And Oprah's new book was announced. Was a huge amount of hype about that. The Water Dancer by Tanasi Hasi. <coughs> I'm sorry, I do not know what happened there. No disrespect whatsoever to the author. I'm just jet lagged. Oprah's book club pick is The Water Dancer by Ta-Nehisi Coates Uh, and of course there's been a huge amount of fuss about that online. I also bought a lot of newspapers home and what I love about foreign newspapers, um, Virginia, is not so much the headline stories because they're often on the front of every newspaper in the world but it's all the sort of smaller stories on the internal pages and the advertisements and I think they sometimes give you a real Insight into a place, and they're so much better than what we have here in. Yes, I'm Perth. afraid they are. I'm afraid they are. I also got to see the new stage production on Broadway of Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird, oh. which has been written by Aaron Sorkin, no less, starring Jeff Daniels as Atticus Finch. And I sort of by no means want to detract from Daniels' performance because he was fabulous, but the star of the show was the actress who plays Scout, Celia Keenan Bolger. And she has won a Tony Award um, and she sort of took the new uh, role as narrator to a completely new level. So that was fabulous. And it was the 74th session of the United Nations General Assembly while we were there as well, which meant that the city was in complete traffic gridlock, particularly in midtown. And I'm look, I'm sure that security is pretty high in New York anyway, but it was complete overload. There were police, secret service, foreign security services, FBI. People with those little wires in their ear. In plain sight, everywhere. There were roadblocks everywhere and you'd be walking on the pavement and there's clearly somebody who is important who I, I did not recognise, surrounded by 15 security personnel. And so you'd literally be pushed off the pavement as they walked past. Wow. So it's lucky that we walked everywhere or took the subway because the city was at a standstill. For every General Assembly, the introductory session is called the General Debate. And every country gets 15 minutes to speak. And they raise the issues that I guess that are important to them. Uh, And it takes about five days to hear from everyone. There's a morning session, there's an afternoon session. And the order they speak in is determined by a number of factors. So there's seniority of the person attending. So if you only send a foreign minister, that person's not going to get to speak as early as, for example, if you send the prime minister. Also, there's a bit of geographical balance that's thrown into the mix and also their own preference for where they want to speak. But the funny thing is, since 1955, Brazil has always spoken first. And apparently that's because in the early founding years, nobody wanted to speak first. How fascinating. So Brazil said, oh, we'll speak. And so from now on... I love that. ...they are allowed to speak first. I, I just thought that was fantastic yeah. to it. And America always speaks second because they are the host country and clearly pay for a lot of the United Nations. However, when the President is late, as he has been for the last two years, not this year, but the last two years, he's been late, then then he gets relegated. They just keep going regardless. Well, they would have to to get mm. through everyone, I imagine. And he, each leader has a theme. So this year Boris spoke about technology, Jacinta Ardern, who actually spoke on the first day, clearly elevated, I think, because of recent events in Christchurch. She spoke about terrorism, not surprisingly, and SCOMO, um, Scott Morrison, spoke about Australia's efforts in relation to climate change. And I thought that was quite interesting because at the same time of the General Assembly this week, there was also the UN Climate Action Summit Mm -hmm. and the Youth Climate Action Summit. So Greta Thunberg was there and, and she, of course, made a very impassioned... And critical speech at the UN. But Australia wasn't invited to speak because we're viewed as having such a poor record on climate issues, environmental issues. So we weren't invited to speak at the Climate Action Summit. And in fact, ScoMo got out of town. He went off to Chicago and and wasn't in New York for that period of time. So he chose to speak about Australia's efforts in relation to climate change when he was given his 15 minutes. To try and lift our rating. Yeah, I think maybe that was the thinking. And, of course, while we were there, the impeachment scandal with the Ukrainian president broke as well. So, basically, this just added to the general mayhem that was happening in New York. It was also the New York Film Festival, so it was a huge week to be in New York. But one of my favourite things about visiting New York is the architecture and the buildings. And on previous visits... I always thought that the sort of Manhattan skyline was a great balance of old and new buildings. And even where the older buildings were being towered over by new modern skyscrapers, they sort of still held their own. They still sort of dominated because they're so iconic and they still had this sort of real presence. But I think that's beginning to change a little bit. I just get the sense there are so many new modern towers being built that the older Buildings are losing a little bit of their dominance. Um, But I'll put a lot of photographs on our Insta page of some of the buildings and some of my favourite buildings. But possibly my favourite building of all is the New York Public Library. And that's a very grand building which was finished in 1902 and it's in the Beaux Arts style. I don't know a lot about the Beaux Arts style other than that it's a very formal, symmetrical kind of style with lots of decorative balustrades and balconies. Other sort of notable Beaux Arts buildings in New York would be the Grand Central Station and also the facade of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. They're known as Beaux Arts buildings. And the library sits in the middle of Manhattan in Midtown. And it is it is a very grand and decorative building. And most visitors tend to head up straight to the third floor, which is where the Rose Reading Room is. And it's a huge room. I think it's virtually two blocks. That's how big it is. And it's got these towering ceilings. But what's lovely is that it's actually filled with people working and studying and researching. It's not for show. There's rows and rows of desks with beautiful lamps and people are actually working there. I have seen photos of it. I'd love to go. Yeah, no, really, really beautiful. And what I discovered when I was there, I hadn't realised this, the library sits next to Bryant Park. You know, there's a lovely outdoor reading room there with racks of books and lots of seating areas. And I believe in summer they have a real program of speakers and things. But underneath the park, this is the bit I didn't know, is where all the books are stored for the library. There's actually two floors of storage beneath Bryant Park and it has a capacity of over, I think something like four million items that they can fit underneath this park. And they have abandoned the Dewey system of cataloguing and they now store books not according to subject matter, which I think is extraordinary, they store them according to size and they found by doing that, by putting all the little books together and all the big books together, it's created a huge amount more space. And they've put this new little railway system in place. So if you were in the Rose Reading Room, Virginia, and you wanted, there was a book you'd seen on the computer and you wanted to request it, you'd go up to the librarian, you'd give them the notation. They would then send that through to the staff members who are underground and they would go and take it off the shelf and they'd put it in a little red railway cart which is sort of the size of a giant how grocery box. Wonderful. And it comes on 100 metres worth of railway track up to the third floor. But how do they know to find it? Do they go, oh, it's a small book? Well, well <laughs> they, they obviously have a numbering system. They obviously have a numbering system. So they know where the books are according to the numbering system. But So do they write beside it a uh, very small, small, regular, <laughs> extra, <laughs> giant <laughs> book. <ball. laughs> to the ginormous section and <laughs> it's, it's an art book. It's in the ginormous section. <laughs> well, obviously the books are still numbered. <laughs> so I'm sure the numbering tells them where to go. But in terms of where that book actually is, when you find it, it happens to be with other books of similar size. Anyway, I just want to mention... I wonder if they have a petite section. <laughs> <laughs> extra, extra, For novellas. <laughs> Anyway, I thought this was interesting. Mm. Anyway, there's two other buildings I was just going to mention. They're more modern buildings. And the first is the Frank Gehry Tower, which is in lower Manhattan. And that was completed in 2011. And at the time, it was the tallest residential tower in the Western Hemisphere at 76 storeys. It's a very distinctive Frank Gehry building. It's got sort of these undulating ways of stainless steel on the exterior and they sort of reflect light. So the building never looks the same at different times of the day. The best way of seeing it is if you come off the Brooklyn Bridge as you're coming from Brooklyn to Manhattan and it, it's there in front of you and it's it's very imposing and I really love it. And it sits next to the, wool, the old Woolworth building, which is an iconic old building in New York and they make quite a match. And then the second building I was going to mention is the Freedom Tower, which was completed in 2014 and that's now known as One World Trade Centre and it's the main building of the rebuilding of the World Trade Centre complex and it is now the tallest building in the United States and it's the tallest building in the Western Hemisphere and the seventh tallest building in the world. And it's just absolutely beautiful. It's covered in pieces of prismic glass, glass, And then it's made up of eight isosceles triangles, which join in a square at the top. And it's absolutely beautiful. It's been described as a kaleidoscope. And whenever you're in the lower part of Manhattan, you can always orientate yourself by wherever you see the spire. It's really beautiful. Yeah, really beautiful building. So I think it's a good time for me to mention a new book with the simple title Built, which has been published in Western Australia by Fremantle Press. And this book has been written by two young Perth architects, Tom McKendrick and Elliot Langdon. And it's a collection and a celebration of iconic examples of architecture in Perth, Fremantle and surrounding suburbs. It's a small book. It's really sort of accessible in your hands. And it's not like a, a big, heavy coffee table book on architecture. And it features about 50 buildings. And I've heard these two architects talk and... I think one of the challenges for them was, in fact, deciding which 50 buildings in Perth that they would include in the book. And and they had disagreements over a couple of the inclusions, I believe. Many of the selection in the book won't be a surprise. Obviously, the Supreme Court's in there and the old Treasury buildings and Winthrop Hall at UWA. And our own Beau Arts Postal Building in Murray Street is also included. Council House is in there which, you know, there's obviously been some controversy over that building. I, for one, am very glad they never pulled yeah. it down. Yeah. And there's Yegan Square and the new stadium. But what, what makes the book really interesting, I think, apart from the distinctive illustrations, is the fact that they've really done their research and they've included information and facts in there about the buildings that you wouldn't ordinarily know about. So some of the sort of behind-the-scenes kind of information about the history of the buildings and the owners and the architects... And there's also some very distinctive private residential houses and apartments that have been included in the selection and, and they make really interesting reading. So this is a sort of a good recommendation, I think, for anyone who loves architecture or design or, for, the, for that matter, anyone who's interested in the history of Western Australia as well because some of the older buildings, of course reflect the Western Australians' history at the time when the CBD was being developed. Just looking at it, it's such a beautiful, that duck egg blue, and and I've just thought it would make a perfect gift for someone. Yeah, it's a really lovely collection. I don't think we're very good at recording our history. No. We're just not good at at doing that, and I think this is lovely. Mm. It's a lovely book. I should mention that I have a connection to the publisher of this book, Fremantle Press, Fremantle Press is a small not-for-profit independent publisher in Western Australia and I sit on their board and I'm very passionate about their role in promoting and representing Western Australian authors and voices and we will from time to time feature some of their books but of course at the Diving In podcast we don't have favorites do we Virginia no. and you'll see we feature books from a huge range of publishers Yes <clears throat> Now my voice is going and we've uh, we've been reading some American novels Virginia I think I need to stop talking and let you have a chat.
1: Okay. Well, Lou, as you were away in America, I thought I would read books set in America in solidarity with you. So, the first book that I read was Inland by Taya O'Brett, and it's got it's a beautiful sort of purpley, yellowy cover, which you realise when you're reading it represents a beautiful sunset in the middle of America. It was sent to me at my request by Hachette Australia. I'm very fortunate they do send me quite a few review copies, but I have actually recently started asking for particular books when I read reviews and can tell that I'm going to really enjoy something. This was one. I could tell that I would love it and it really is wonderful. So, Taya won the Orange Prize for Fiction with her first book, The Tiger's Wife, and I have now, I now want to read that one. I haven't read it, but this is so good that it's made me want to go and get that one. She was born in Belgrade in the former Yugoslavia in 1985, and she's lived in the USA since she was 12, and she lives in New York. I'm going to have to be careful that I don't rave too much over this book, because it can become a bit tiresome, but it really is wonderful. It's set in the frontier lands of Arkansas and Missouri, right across to Arizona, and it's sort of a different kind of western. And I have to say, if you said to me, oh, you must read this book, it's a western, I'm not sure I would jump on board, but the writing is so beautiful and the two storylines are wonderful. It's very cleverly done. So there are two very different narrative threads. The first starts in 1853 and we meet a young guy, talking to someone you don't find out who until some way in and it's very rare in fiction to find things written in the second person narrative it's quite difficult to do so it's quite an intriguing thing because you think you, the reader's thinking well, who is he talking to I mean it often happens with epistolary books where there's a letter and it's obvious yeah. someone's writing but with this you just don't know who he's talking to so you have to keep reading to sort of piece it all together. And it turns out that the person who is speaking, the narrator, is a young guy named Luri, He's of Baltic descent. He's been orphaned and he's got in with a gang of stagecoach robbers. They've inadvertently killed a man. And he becomes an outlaw and there are wanted posters everywhere. And he joins up with the US Camel Corps which was used by the United States Army and they they got this group of camels manned by cameleers from the Ottoman Empire to transport goods across the middle of America. And he somehow rather joins up with them and he's quite an interesting character because he can see dead people. So there is an element of magical realism throughout the novel but it's very well done. So if you're not mad on magical realism, I, I wouldn't let that put you off because this is just it's just beautifully done and it's not heavily done. So with these camels, he, he has his particular camel and he moves across the inland of America and many events unfold over a period of 40 years. So that narrative strand is a big sort of sweeping arc of time. And then the alternate story is set across a single day in Arizona in 1893. So 40 years on. And they're alternating, so it is a bit disorienting until you get into the swing of it. The main character is Nora. She's a wife and a mother of three boys and she has an orphaned niece living with them and helping her and they're living in the harshest of environments just outside of a tiny town and they run a local newspaper and live a pretty self-sufficient life and a pretty difficult life. She's sort of a hardy frontiers woman. You can just imagine her. She's dealing with drought and... She's thirsty all the time. So her part only, there's only about, I don't know, five or six segments that are with Nora. And in every one, her thirst is getting worse. Mm. So it makes you feel thirsty uh, reading the book because their water tank has run out or it's nearly run out and she is leaving it there. The mother is leaving the water for the children and everybody else and going without herself. And she can also see dead people. And in particular, she can see a daughter that she had who died. And Nora is waiting for her husband to return. He's been gone for several days. He went to get water. And everyone is becoming very alarmed as to why he hasn't returned. And the writing is just wonderful. She, uh, Taya Obert's created the most vividly imagined story. It's really unlike anything I've ever read. And it The closest that I think I can come to comparing it with anything is The Luminaries by Eleanor Catton, which is uh, another frontier story Mm. set in the New Zealand gold fields. And that's got incredible twists and turns and characters and there's gold that's here and then it's sewn into the dresses and then it turns up elsewhere. It's very complicated and twisty and turny and clever. And Inland is a bit like that. They're completely different stories, but the intricacy... And the beautiful writing and the frontier element are quite quite similar. The stories do sort of intersect, but I won't go into that because that's part of the charm of the book and it certainly would be a spoiler. It has some really brilliant twists and I really want to discuss it with someone else who's read it Um, and I think it should win all the prizes. The second one that I read is called The Other Americans by Leila Lalami. And I bought this in London because I've been wanting to read her other book, The Moors Account, for ages. And that was nominated for a Pulitzer and for The Man Booker, so I thought she's probably a pretty good writer. And I really enjoyed this. She was born in Morocco. She studied in the UK and then she moved to America. This book's set in 21st century California, so quite a different time period from... Inland, and it opens with a hit and run accident in which a Moroccan American man who runs a restaurant is killed. And there are no witnesses to the accident, or so it Mm. seems. And this book doesn't have two narrative streams, it has about nine. Oh, wow. I think there are nine people who tell their version of events, or the narrative is driven forward through these nine different characters who are connected to the hit and run. And they each tell their story chapter by chapter. So some are family members. There's a police investigator. There's the guy in the neighbouring business next door to the restaurant. Uh, there's a bowling alley. So there's the guy who runs the bowling alley. And, that, and he had had an argument with the man who got killed in the hit and run about parking lots. So the threads of the story are sort of held together by the progression of the police mm. investigation. And there are secrets uncovered. There's a question of, was it an accident or was it murder? And are you being propelled forward? Uh, yes, by the... yes. So it's got a good forward momentum. You, even though secrets are uncovered early and you think, oh, well, that's not the twist, it still keeps the story going. Mm. Sometimes you, if something's revealed too early, you think, oh, well, yeah, I do exactly. have to keep reading. But this was really good. And there's an old school friend of the daughter of the deceased man and he comes back into her life And he and his friend are both army veterans from Iraq and they're really struggling with their mental health as a result of being in Iraq. So it's a very clever evocation of what it's like to be in the army and having been in a war...
0: And then returning to... And
1: returning. And the man who died and his wife had left Morocco and have experienced
0: a the different trauma. type of... Yeah. Yes, so... Oh, I want to read this it, now. It's very yeah. well
1: done and it's not shoved down your throat. Mm. It's very delicate. It's um, not, not didactic at all. So it's a, really quite a brilliant evocation of the many different types of people who are American and the oh, yeah. interplay between the political events in each of their lives... And the way the politics has affected their personal lives. Mm. I really enjoyed it. Not quite as much as I enjoyed Inland, but I really enjoyed it. So that's a really good one. No good, I might take that one off your hands. Yes, you're welcome to it. And then I did start to read Three Women by Lisa Tadeo, which Mm -hmm. has had a lot of hype. And this was another one that I had asked for from Bloomsbury and they very kindly sent it to me at the peak of its hype. And I'm always loath to say negative things about a book because I always feel like it represents an author's blood, sweat and tears and their hard work and who am I to come along and be critical. But I have to be honest and say it's not for me. I read about 150 pages and I just did not enjoy it at all. I felt like the three women that she selected as her subjects were deliberately chosen to elicit... The most salacious stories. Yeah, I agree. They don't really represent women across the board at all. I don't know any women that represent any and it's of this. interesting
0: because she starts with explaining the fact that she did pick those three and, and the reasons why. Yeah. And, yeah, look, I, I didn't even get as far as 150 yeah. pages, I'm afraid.
1: I read 150 and then I skimmed the next bit and then I gave up completely. I'm not going to say any more about it because... I know I'm in the minority, lots of people loved it, so... It's certainly had a
0: lot of press and, yeah, it does seem to be popular, but...
1: Yeah. Oh, well. Uh, So what did you read, Lou?
0: I've read a wonderful book uh, by an American author, Jacqueline Woodson, that came out a few weeks ago called Red at the Bone, which was only released uh, on the 17th of September in America and here as well. So it's currently in hardback, but it's quite a short book. It's only 190 pages. It basically tells the story of two urban black families in America that are from different social classes and they're thrown together because of an unexpected teen pregnancy and the result of that who is a child, a girl called Melody. And the book starts in 2001 and you're actually transported to her grandparents' brownstone in Brooklyn and it's her 16th birthday. And she's surrounded by family and friends and her father escorts her into the party to the soundtrack of Prince. She has chosen Prince as her uh, music, much to her mother's disappointment. And she's wearing a special custom made dress. But what you soon discover is that that dress was originally sewn for her mother for her 16th birthday party, which never took place because of the unwanted pregnancy. The chapters sort of switch between different family members and they sort of go backwards and forwards in time and so you learn the history of her great-grandparents, her grandparents and her parents and you're immediately sort of taken to their emotions. There's sort of no messing around with this book. You, you know, you you feel their ambitions, their decisions, how hard they work to overcome racial expectations about identity, education class, and also that the pull of history. And then, of course, central to the book are the decisions and the conflict and the relationships that surround the child, Melody. It's an incredibly poetic book. I know that's said quite often about books, but I found it extremely moving. Much of the sort of emotional focus is on Melody's mother, Iris, who decided to keep the baby. And you are sort of privy to all her internal dialogue, you know, of her, I suppose, private hopes and disappointments. Because sixteen is very know, young, isn't I it? I know, and of course conceived at fifteen. And you, you get this sense that her and the and Melody's father, Aubrey, sort of made these long-lasting decisions about their lives before they'd even sort of grown up and decided what they really wanted from life. And Iris's family have sort of instilled in her the belief that she would one day go to college and she's never doubted the fact that she would do so. So obviously having a, a child at 16 wasn't part of that plan and she wants so much more from life than being a mother and it's interesting because there's a lot of weight given to that desire that she has and she's not judged for it so you get the sense that she's respected for the fact that that's what she wants you know, you really do get the sense that she's 16 and people at 16 grow and they change. And so she immerses herself in her high school studies and, you know, she's reading Shakespeare and Bronte and while Aubrey sleeps with the child oh, on wow. him and he falls in love with the baby, whereas it's a real contrast with Iris who who just wants, she's hungry to learn and she's ambitious And there's there's just this lovely phrasing in the book where she said, even this early on, she knew she could never be happy at home again. She had outgrown Brooklyn. She'd outgrown Aubrey and Um. even Melody. Was that cruel to be the child's mother, but even at 19, to have the gut sense that she'd done all she could for her. Oh, gosh. I cried a lot through the book, but it's really beautiful. It stays with you. It's described as dazzling by the New York Times reviewer. And I think that's a really, really good word for it. Despite a lot of sadness in the book, you know, you're left feeling that the choices that Iris makes are legitimate choices. Anyway. That that's sounds That's read to the bone. It's a huge swan dive for me and I wouldn't be waiting to buy it in paperback. It's, yeah, yeah. it's a really, really beautiful book so I can recommend that. Mm.
1: What else have you been diving into? Oh, I have a great recommendation for a podcast that I have been uh, hooked on. It's called The Open Ears Project with Clemency Burton-Hill and it's presented by the WNYC Studios, which I assume is a radio station. And Clemency is a British broadcaster and she has a book that I've been wanting to get for ages called Year of Wonder, Classical Music for Every Day. It has a piece of music, I presume 365 pieces of music, and then you can download the music from Apple Music there's some connection and I've just not got around to it but she's now got this podcast which is 30 days of beautiful music and each day a guest talks about what that piece means to them and they're very moving stories so each episode is only about six minutes eight minutes Ooh, maybe ten at the most yeah. because they only play one movement from each composition so that it starts off with the person talking about the piece of music with that piece in the background mm. but you can't focus on it then when they finished speaking she plays that whole movement and this podcast is especially great for people I think who know nothing about classical music but who would like to discover all the really best pieces yes It's completely sublime, and I urge you to tune in and give it a try. The first guest took me by surprise. It's Alec Baldwin. Oh, really? And he chose the most wonderful music. It's a piece that I recognised from the O'Neill Line TV series. Oh, yes. And it's fantastic listening to him speak. And my favourite has been Day 15. So far, that's been my favourite, which is Steve Wright. Reich's, I think he pronounced it, Steve Reich's Music for 18 Musicians, which is I've listened to it several times. And, and the guy speaking about it is a musician in the army and he talks about the effect it had on him at a particular time in his life and I was just mm. glued to it. It's the most gorgeous thing and every day it just pops up on your podcasting and it's a quick... And lovely to have
0: that oh, yeah, snapshot of... Is yeah
1: fantastic.
0: Yeah. Very uplifting too. Very
1: uplifting, beautiful. The other thing I've been glued to is the true crime Netflix Mm. show, Unbelievable, which our friend Caro, who's a fellow murderino, recommended. So all of us have been reading it and, oh, my goodness, it's fantastic. So it's a dramatisation of an investigation Mm. into a serial rapist and Tony Collette is one detective, mm. and Merritt Weaver or Weaver yes. is the yeah, other, Weaver, and yes. they are so great. They They're are, aren't they? Really great actresses mm. together, um, and so I was completely hooked on all eight episodes. I've even bought the book, and the only other thing that I've really done is we went to the ballet and we saw Giselle. And it was oh, a really beautiful. lovely. It was a lovely outing. We did it for Mum's birthday, and. So it was mum and my sister and I and then our three daughters. So it was all the girls. So I sort of looked along the row and it was all the girls in our family all out together. It's not something we do very often, but I just thought it's such a wonderful thing to create moments and memories like that. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, It would be easy to say, oh, it's too expensive. or we can't get everyone together. But we really made the effort and... We created some really lovely memories, and the best part was that they brought these three little Labradors onto the stage really? in, in the festival scene. So I knew that was coming because I'd read the notes, and they were called something like Chloe, Ivy, and Misty, or something. But I, and I, but I didn't know what breed of dog no. they were. And, you know, suddenly there's this hoo ha, and you see this gorgeously dressed. Ballerinas walking these divine little Labradors, and they were wagging their tails, and they you know, just stole the show completely. And, and totally and quite made, novel, quite very novel. novel. Yeah, I think how should do, I, I think every
0: ballet should have Labradors. Ballet and dogs. <laughs> it
1: just—it <laughs> was wonderful. Yeah, gorgeous. Yeah.
0: What have you been diving into, Lou? Well, I have been watching a couple of things. There's a new, quite thought-provoking documentary on Netflix called American Factory. When American presidents retire, they, you know, they often go on speaking circuits or write their memoirs or set up foundations. But the Obamas, former President Barack and First Lady Michelle Obama, have set up a new production company called Higher Ground. And the aim of the production company is to tell great stories. That's one of their passions, great American stories. And they've hired a former HBO executive to run it. And I think they've done some deal with Netflix. Anyway, the first Film Project is a documentary which premiered at the Sundance Film Festival this year, I think. That's the festival that's founded by Robert Redford and held in Utah every year. And the documentary follows a General Motors plant that had been shut down in 2008 outside Dayton, Ohio. The timing's quite interesting, given that when Trump was elected and the comments that he made about jobs, and it's bought and converted into a factory by China's Fuyao glass. So they get it up and running by 2010 and it's a glass factory and it's the glass that goes inside cars, windshields and, and things. But it is interesting in the context of how hawkish Trump's been about China and American jobs. The film starts out on a really sort of positive note. It's quite optimistic. Each American worker at the factory is paired with a Chinese worker. So that must have been part of the deal that a lot of Chinese workers came out to live in America And initially the Americans are the supervisors... And, you know, there's some quite sort of touching footage of the Chinese workers after they've clocked off. They're obviously missing their families in China. They go off and try fishing and they have some interaction with the American workers, but not much. Generally, they they live in groups in houses. And there are some pairings of the workers where they build positive connections, the Chinese worker and the American worker. And, And initially I thought that was because a lot of the American workers who are employed, uh former general motors workers who'd been employed for a couple of years unemployed for a couple of years and they're thrilled that they've got their employment got back yeah but eventually the sort of clash of working cultures oh. takes over and what different styles or completely work, different different work, styles. work ethic. yeah and work ethic and look you know it does show both sides it's a very balanced documentary On the one hand, the American workers are pushing back on the number of hours that they're being asked to work. They're extremely concerned about safety. Their exposure to the heat of the glass furnace is above acceptable levels, and and they're getting injured, uh, and they want to unionise. And, of course, this is an anathema to the Chinese workers and, of course, to their bosses because they'll do whatever is asked of them. Um, they sort of have this unflinching loyalty to Fuyao, almost as if it's their family. And, of course, the two perspectives uh, are bound to clash. It's, it's fascinating and I would urge you to see it. There's also a very short 15-minute film on Netflix which is a conversation with the Obamas about their new production company and about this documentary. We really enjoyed today's episode and we hope you have too. You'll find a list of the books we've reviewed and anything else we've talked about today in the show notes. You'll also find some of the books featured on our Instagram page at diving underscore in underscore podcast. If you would like to share with us any books you've been diving into, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at hello at divingin.com. And wherever you listen to the Diving In Podcast, Whatever platform you use, we would appreciate it if you would please subscribe and take a minute to rate and review us, because that will mean we can grow our audience.
1: Breaking up, up, working in, in. breaking
0: up,